Today we're going to continue our Bible study on Ephesians called The Riches of Grace. And this is teaching number 20. It's called Growing Children in Grace. It comes out of Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, which reads, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So I want us to begin with looking at Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 first. That's directed to children. Then Ephesians 6, 4 is directed to fathers. So let's, let's look at Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 first. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life. So let's start, let's break this down with children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. You know, obedience really has to come from a place of trust. We want to create trust in our children. We want them to be able to trust us so that when they obey us, they know that they can trust that we love them. And I think this goes back to Adam and Eve. You know, when God gave Adam and Eve the instructions, do not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. It was love. That was a loving warning uh, that God was giving them. And if you think about it, in order for Adam to disobey God, in order for Eve to disobey God, Satan created distrust in Eve and in Adam toward God. Think about what he said. He comes to Eve and he tells Eve, did God really say? Or can you trust God? Does God really love you? And he's really trying to distort the image of God in the mind of Adam and in the mind of Eve first, that if he can get Adam and Eve to distrust God, to believe that God doesn't love them, then he can then persuade them to disobey God. So in order to get Adam and Eve to disobey God, he had to first distort the character of God in their minds and in their hearts. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care for you. Now, when it comes to parents, we want to create trust in the heart of our children. And the way we create trust in the heart of our children is by our love for them. It's loving them. So children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. To me means trust that your parents love and care for you. Trust that your parents have what is best in mind for you. Do what they ask you to do, even if you don't understand and it doesn't make sense because your parents have wisdom from life experiences. And the second part of this verse says, honor your father and mother, which Paul is directly quoting the Ten Commandments here. He's quoting Exodus 20, 12 and Deuteronomy 5, 16. So when I think of the word honor, your father and mother, I think about talking to them respectfully. Don't talk to them in a way that makes them seem dumb or stupid. Talk to your mother and father respectfully. Listen to and act on their advice, their wisdom, and their experience. Now, what's interesting is that Paul quotes one of the Ten Commandments because he doesn't do this with any of the other commandments. This is the only time that Paul quotes one of the Ten Commandments. And, and one of the things we know is that the church isn't under the law. Israel was under the law, and this was one of the commandments in the Ten Commandments that was for the nation of Israel. But the church is under grace. So the question is, why does Paul 
bring one commandment from the Ten Commandments into the church because he doesn't bring any of the other commandments over. Now, Paul still teaches on stealing. He still teaches on lying. He still teaches on adultery. But they don't come in the form of law. And I think the reason Paul brings honor your father and mother over from the Ten Commandments is because he puts this statement in right after he says, honor your father and mother. And the statement is this, which is the first commandment with a promise. So if we read the other Ten Commandments, none of the other commandments have a promise to them. Every commandment has a punishment, but only one commandment has a punishment and a promise. And so the punishment part of the, this commandment, the punishment part has been satisfied in Jesus. Go back maybe this week when you get some time and read about the punishment that was due a child who dishonored his father and mother, who broke that law. You can read about it in Exodus 21, 15, Exodus 21, 17, Leviticus 20, verse 9, 21, verse 17, Deuteronomy 27, 16, Proverbs 20, 20, and Proverbs 30, 11. But the punishment for a child that dishonored his father or mother or her father or mother was death. That, that was the punishment. Pretty strict punishment for dishonoring your father and mother. Jesus took the punishment for our sins. The law reveals our sins, and Jesus took the retribution for our sin. He took the punishment for our sins. He took the consequences for our sins. But what's interesting is this is the only commandment with a promise. And the promise is that life will go well with you, and you will enjoy a long and a good life. Now, what we do notice is that Jesus brought an end to the law. Ephesians two fourteen through 16, for Jesus himself is our peace, that's Jew and Gentile. He has made the two one, that's Jew and Gentile. We're in one family now. He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility, that's the law of Moses, by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees, that's the law of Moses. He did this, he abolished the law, destroying its commandments and decrees, that's referring to the Ten Commandments, all the rules, all the regulations. They were nailed to the cross with Jesus. He did this, God did this to create in himself one new man out of the two, or one new family, one new race, one new group, which we call the church. And I, I call it the family of grace on earth. Whereas Israel was under the law, the church is under grace. Major distinction between the two. God did this to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and reconciling or bringing both of them into relationship with God, reconciling both of them, that's Jew and Gentile, to God in one body, in one group, in one family called the church. So we've been reconciled to one another. We've been reconciled to God in one body through the cross, through what Jesus did, which that's where the law was abolished. That's where the commandments were abolished. That's where the decrees were abolished. At the cross, they were nailed to the cross with Jesus, by which he extinguished their Jew and Gentile's hostility. So Jesus brought an end to the law, but one commandment, one commandment comes over from the law of Moses 
and it's honor your father and mother because it's the only one that has a promise. Now, the church is the family of grace. We see in Ephesians 2.19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God that together, those who come to faith in Christ, we're now a part of the family of grace. All right, so let's finish looking at Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, which says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Here's the promise. If you go back into Exodus 20 and into Deuteronomy, you can read that right out of the Jewish scriptures. The promise that is attached to this commandment is this so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on earth. That's a promise that God makes to children. If you honor your father and mother by obeying your parents, then life will go well with you and you will enjoy a long life on earth. Notice the punishment part of the law does not come over. Paul does not bring the punishment part, because the punishment part of this law was nailed to the cross with Jesus. God makes no other promises. God doesn't promise, hey, if you don't steal, then life will go well with you. If you don't lie, then life will go well with you. None of the other commandments have that promise. What's interesting is parents are going to teach their children, hey, don't steal. And that's part of the instructions we're going to give our children is, how to live and how to make the right decision. So let's take a quick look at, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on earth. So we want to parent our children in such a way that the instructions that we're giving them and and grandchildren as well, the instructions that we're giving them, the advice that we're giving them, the wisdom that we're giving them will enable them to enjoy a long life on earth and so that life on earth will go well with them. So as parents, we want to raise our children to have a life of quality and a life of quantity so that it may go well with you. That's the idea of a life with quality. It may go well with you, and you may enjoy a long life on earth, quantity. So that's really the heart of God for children and and for all of humanity, so that life will go well with you, quality, and you may enjoy long life on earth, quantity. So what can parents do to help their children have a life of quality and quantity? Just some thoughts here. Parents can help their children make the right decisions in life so that they avoid destructive consequences of poor decisions and the pain these decisions bring. Parents can help their children make the right decisions in life so they experience the joy that comes from making good decisions. Parents can model making good decisions. Parents can model good behavior. Parents can model a good attitude. And so that's what parents can do to help their children have a long life on earth and an enjoyable life on earth. Now with children, part of the motivation for honoring your mother and father, for obeying your mother and father, is so that life will go well with a child. And they will enjoy long life on earth. So here's some thoughts about children obeying their parents. By obeying their parents, children's lives will be smoother and more successful. By obeying their parents, children's lives will be less painful and more productive. 
by obeying their parents, children can save themselves from a life of heartache and experience a life of happiness. Now, what Paul does from this point is he moves from addressing children and encouraging and exhorting children to obey their mother and father for there's right in the Lord, honor your father and mother so that life will go well with you and you will have a long life and a long, enjoyable life on earth is he transitions away from children to fathers. And he does this in Ephesians 6, 4. And he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. We're going to break down this verse phrase by phrase here. And the first we're going to start off with, do not exasperate. So to exasperate a child is to treat a child in such a way that it causes the child to give up, to lose hope, to lose self-worth, to lose self-esteem. An example that I think about with this is one of the most enjoyable times in my life is, is being with my children when they were younger and playing baseball with them and going to the Little League baseball games and being their coach. And I just enjoyed that time of their lives, uh, being a baseball coach with my children. And one of the things I tried to do consistently with my children was I always wanted to encourage them in whatever game they were playing. And so I just wanted to make sure that I don't care how many times you strike out. I don't care how many fly balls you drop. I don't care how many ground balls you miss or how many bad throws you make. I want you to know that I love you and I care for you. Your value to me, my love for you, my acceptance of you has absolutely nothing to do with your performance on the field. And I remember whenever they would make an error or a bad throw, hey, don't worry about it. No big deal. We'll get them next time. And, and one of the things I guess that was really difficult for me as a parent was to hear the other parents when a child would strike out. I remember in particularly one of my sons had a friend and they were, they were the same age. They were typically on the same team. This kid could do nothing right. He was a good little athlete, good little ball player. But man, his dad was on him from, from the time they drove up in the parking lot for the game to the time when they left. And it didn't matter what this child did. It was wrong. It wasn't good enough. And the dad was just on the kid the whole game. And what it did was it created anxiety in the child. This child lived in a state of anxiety and fear. He was so afraid of making a mistake on the baseball field. And what I began to notice is the kids who played in freedom made less mistakes on the ball field than the kids who played in fear. The kids who were afraid of dropping a fly ball were more likely to drop the fly ball. Kids who were afraid of striking out because of, of dad would more likely strike out. Kids who were afraid of making a bad throw because dad would yell at them would more likely make the bad throw or miss a ground ball. I remember when my, when my son got into college, he wrote a paper. In this paper, he wrote about his childhood experience playing baseball with me being his coach. And, and this isn't bragging about me at all. This is just the power of God's grace inside of me and what it did in my life. And I really wanted to parent my children the way God parented me. And I wanted to pass that along, even in a baseball game. And so it's really, it's really boasting about the grace of God and what it did for me as a dad. So 
I remember Philip wrote a paper, and in the paper he said, I never had to worry about my dad yelling at me during a ball game, getting angry at me during a ball game, putting me down, criticizing me during a ball game. I always knew my dad loved me, no matter what, no matter if I made a good play or no matter if I missed a ground ball, no matter what. And so that's what I wanted. That, that's what I wanted. I wanted my children to know that I loved them and I cared for them and I valued them no matter what they did because I didn't want to exasperate them. I didn't want them to give up. I didn't want them to lose hope. I didn't want them to lose self-worth. I didn't, I didn't want them to think that their self-worth was dependent upon if they caught a ground ball or not, that your value and your worth as a human being has nothing to do if you catch a pop-up or drop a pop-up or strike out with the bases loaded or get hit a grand slam with the bases loaded. It's irrelevant to my love for you and my value for you. Same with grades. You know, we want to help our kids make good grades, but uh, we, we don't want our value of them based upon the grades that they bring home from school. We want to help them make good grades uh, for sure. Now, what does it mean to exasperate a child? To exasperate a child is to consistently talk down to a child, criticism, put downs, harsh words. To exasperate a child is to fail to listen to a child, the child's joys, the child's hurts, or his disappointments or pain. Just failure to listen and to understand why they're feeling what they're feeling. We exasperate a child when we lecture the child rather than listen to the child. Remember when the prodigal came home, the, the father didn't lecture the, the son. Instead of lecturing the son, he loved the son. Instead of criticizing the son, he had compassion on the son. Instead of being angry toward the son, he accepted the son. Instead of being frustrated about what the son had done, he forgave the son. I mean, that is such a picture of a father loving a child and not exasperating a child. To exasperate a child is to fail to notice the child's accomplishments, successes, and talents. To exasperate a child is failure to encourage a child and build a child up with positive words. And to exasperate a child is to pick out the speck in the child's eye while ignoring the log in my own eye. And so we, we want to, as parents, in order not to exasperate them, we want to pick out the things they're doing good. We want to compliment them. We want to lift them up. We want to build them up with our words. Now, what happens when a child is exasperated? When a child is exasperated, the child gets down, gets discouraged, gets depressed, gets frustrated, gets angry. This exasperation will cause the child to give up and go away, to lose hope and to leave home. When a child is exasperated, it pushes a child away from home into possible dangerous relationships and dangerous environments. And when a child is exasperated, it can cause mental, emotional, and spiritual damage in a child. When a child is exasperated, it stunts their mental, emotional, and spiritual growth. Now, the book of Proverbs has so much to say about harsh words and putting down people. It also has a lot to say about building up people with our words, but just for a moment, just want to focus on what the book of Proverbs has to say about harsh words. Proverbs twelve eighteen: the words of the reckless are reckless words, pierce like swords into the heart. That's the emotional damage, the exasperation, the emotional damage, mental damage, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So with our words, we can hurt or we can heal as parents, grandparents, a gentle answer turns away wrath, 
but a harsh word stirs up anger. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. And as parents, you know, we, we, can, we can be foolish sometimes in our parenting because we really don't seek to understand the heart of our children. Why are they feeling like they're feeling? What's going on inside of them? And, and a lot of times we, we're giving our opinion or we're lecturing, which can really cause a lot of damage. The more we listen to our children, the, the more likely they're going to listen to us. So we want to model listening to our children and understanding them. And then in return, we're planting those seeds in them. And they're more likely to listen and, and relate to us in a way where they want to listen. Proverbs eighteen twenty one: the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We've, we've heard the phrase, a person will eat their words. That, that's kind of the idea here. We're going to eat our words one way or another. If we're planting the wrong words in people, then we're going to eat the bad tasting fruit of those words. If we're planting good words in people, we're going to eat the good tasting fruit of our words in their hearts, from their hearts and lives. So rather than relating to our children in a way that exasperates them, Paul encourages fathers to raise their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. And Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 4. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now, what I've noticed a lot of pastors will do when they teach on this verse is they'll go directly from Ephesians 6, 4, and they'll flip all the way back to Deuteronomy, where Moses is, is instructing the parents on how to raise their children in the law. And they totally ignore and, and, and it's not that they, it's just they don't know. They've never, a lot of pastors have never been taught. They don't understand this section that Paul's talking about here. When he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So whenever we do Bible study and the observation phase of Bible study, we want to ask a lot of questions about a verse. For example, what does exasperate mean? How do we exasperate our children uh, would be some questions. What does it mean to bring them up? What, what's the training and the instruction of the Lord? W where does this training and instruction of the Lord come from? So there's a lot of questions we want to ask. And then we want to, in, in, in interpretation, we want to answer those questions. So one of the questions we, like, we want to ask when we do Bible study is, What's the training and the instruction of the Lord? We just don't want to jump back into Deuteronomy right here because that's failure to understand this part of Scripture within its covenant and within its context and its content. So what Paul is saying is that raising a child in the training and instruction of the Lord is relating to a child in a way that is opposite of exasperation, in a way that brings transformation to the heart of the child to the mind of the child, and to a life of the child. So Paul is saying, if we relate to our children in the training and the instruction of the Lord, it will not exasperate them, cause them to give up and go away, but it will encourage and it will strengthen them. So now the question is, what is the training and the instruction of the Lord? Because Paul says, fathers, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So the question we have to ask is, what's the instruction of the Lord? 
Where did Paul get the instruction of the Lord? How do we know what the instruction of the Lord is? Because I can't pass it on to my children if I don't know what the instruction of the Lord is. So the first instructions that Paul gets from Jesus is after Jesus has ascended into heaven and Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. And so in Acts 26, 15 through 18, we have the conversation between the ascended Jesus and Paul when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. In this conversation, we begin to discover the instructions of the Lord. And I think I mentioned this in most of our Bible studies. I go back to this set of verses in this chapter, Acts 26, 15 through 18, so much. And the reason I go back there is this is the beginning place of really us understanding more deeply the gospel of grace. This is where Paul got his message from. This is where Paul got his ministry from. And this is where Paul got his mission from. And it's, it's given to him by Jesus. It says, fathers, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. So now the question, well, who's the Lord? And what's his instructions? And so we can begin to piece this together in Acts 26, 15 through 18. Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul says, who are you, Lord? Now, notice the word there, Lord. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord answers Paul. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Raise your children in the training and the instruction of the Lord. The Lord is Jesus. So we don't want to raise our children in the training and the instruction of the law of Moses. We want to raise our children in the training and the instruction of the cross of Jesus of the grace of Jesus, of the resurrection of Jesus, and the return of Jesus. So we're raising our children in the training and the instruction of the Lord. We begin to get a glimpse of what this instruction is, because basically Paul is passing on the instructions and the content of the instructions to the Gentiles that he first received from Jesus. So Jesus says, I am Jesus, Paul, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we're starting to get the content of the gospel of grace, of the message of grace that we want to instruct our children in. Acts 20, 24, and we'll back up to Acts 20, 23 through 24. And Acts 20, 23 says that in whatever city I go into, this is Paul talking, in whatever city I go into, the Holy Spirit warns me that hardships and difficulties are awaiting me. But I consider my life of no value to me my purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus. Remember the instructions of the Lord. He's referring to the Lord Jesus. Paul said, I, my purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. 
So if a parent is going to raise his children, if a father is going to raise his children in the training and the instruction of the Lord, that training and that instruction, the heart of that training and the heart of that instruction is the gospel of God's grace. So one of the things we want to make sure we do as fathers and as grandfathers is we want to help our children understand the gospel of God's grace. Because nothing is more tragic, I think, for a Christian family. And nothing's more tragic than, than with a church. Is if a child can go through the entire church, and a child can ra- be raised in a family, and when the child graduates, the word grace just may not mean a lot to them. They, they may not even know how to define it. They may not even know what grace is. They may not even understand grace. And that's the heart of the gospel. And so one of the things we want to do as fathers and as parents is we want to help our children understand the heart of the gospel, which is grace. And as a church, we want to help parents understand the gospel of grace so that they can communicate grace to their, to their children. And so it's a really a team effort between the church and family to help our children understand grace. Look what Paul says to the leaders of the church in Acts twenty thirty two. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up. That was Paul's final instructions to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, that he wanted to make sure that the last thing they heard him talk about prior to him leaving was he wanted the leaders to know that the most important thing for the church in Ephesus is the word of God's grace, is the gospel of God's grace, is the message of God's grace, because Paul understood A church ceases to be a church when it ceases focusing on the gospel of grace because the heart of the church has to be the gospel of grace. It has to be the word of grace. It has to be the message of grace. And so that's the instructions that Paul left the leaders with prior to him leaving. Families are coming to a church. And so if families are coming to a church, we've got to make sure as a church that we are communicating the gospel of grace to families because how can a father raise his children in the training and instruction of the Lord, which is the gospel of grace, if the church isn't teaching fathers about the gospel of grace, if the church isn't teaching mothers about the gospel of grace, how can they parent in such a way as to pass on this grace to their children? Now, Paul took the gospel of grace to Ephesus. So Jesus said, I want you to go into the Gentile cities in the Roman Empire And I want you to teach the gospel of grace. I want you to proclaim the gospel of grace. I want you to educate people in the gospel of grace. So Paul took the gospel of grace to Ephesus, and he educated them about grace, and he established them in the truths of grace. He taught them about the truths of grace, and he taught them to relate to one another in grace. And we're going to see this in Ephesians. So Paul would go into these cities, and he would start grace-based churches. And these churches then would become the education centers of grace. These churches would be the education centers of grace to the lost and the education centers of grace to the found. That the main purpose of a church is to educate people about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if people spend most of their years in a church, but they do not know the meaning of grace, then that church has failed them greatly. 
Because the power of God is the gospel of grace. And if the power of God is the gospel of grace, then the power of a church has to be the gospel of grace. So we want to be very strategic within our churches and within the leadership of our churches is that we want to make sure that people who go to whatever church it is, that people are learning about the gospel of God's grace, that they are, they are learning about the instructions of the Lord, which is the gospel of grace. So we want to help those who come to our churches understand the gospel of grace. We want to educate them about grace so that then within their families, that grace can flow into their families. So we see that Paul, his mission from Jesus, we see in Ephesians 3, 1 through 2. Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So Paul's going into Gentile cities. He's proclaiming the message of grace, which Jesus gave him to proclaim, the gospel of grace. So when he goes into these Gentile cities, he then starts grace-based churches. He started one in Ephesus. He started one in Philippi. Uh, So Paul starts these grace-based churches. And he goes on to say in Ephesians 3, 1 through 2, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. For who? For the Gentiles, people in these Gentile cities. Paul was appointed by Jesus to go into these Gentile cities and to share the gospel of grace with the lost there, and then to build them up with grace, which we saw in, a, in Acts 20.32. So surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. And what is this revelation? Well, we saw it in Acts 20.24. It's the gospel of grace. It's what Paul preached in the cities that he went into. In in Galatia, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul talks about that nobody gave him the message that he taught, that it came directly from him through revelation by Jesus, and it was the message of the gospel of grace. So then our question is this. If the instruction of the Lord that we're to teach our children so that it has a positive influence on their lives and has a positive impact on their lives. If that instruction, the instruction of the Lord, is the gospel of grace, that leads us to another question. And the question is this, what is grace? So since we're studying Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers raise your children in the training and the instruction of the Lord, we really want to interpret this verse based upon the book of Ephesians because Paul's assuming that the fathers who are reading the letter that he's written has already read and studied Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4 and 5 before he ever gets into 6. So we find a large amount of the instruction of the Lord in Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, because remember, Paul is communicating and Paul is writing to an audience of what was revealed to him by Jesus. So he's basically giving the instructions of the Lord in Ephesians 1, the instructions of the Lord are in Ephesians 2, and in Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, and Ephesians 5, and in Ephesians 6. These are through Paul from Jesus. So the question is, 
what is grace? If the instruction of the Lord is the gospel of grace, then what is the good news about God's grace? So let's just review some of our studies that we've had before. Grace is the unearned blessings of God freely given to us in Jesus. Look in Ephesians 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the blessings that we've received from God through Christ are unearned. We didn't earn any blessings. We didn't ask for any blessings. We didn't merit any blessings. But he has blessed us with righteousness. He's blessed us with forgiveness. He's blessed us with love. He's blessed us with kindness and goodness. He's blessed us simply because that's his nature and that's his character. And notice what it says here. Praise be to the God and Father. So I really can't be a healthy father to my children until I understand what is my father like? What's God the father like? Well, God the father is a father who blesses his children with every spiritual blessing in Christ where none of that is merited and none of that is earned. It's free and it's full. He blesses us. Grace is the unconditional love of God freely given to us in our sins, our flaws, and our failures. Look what Ephesians 1, 5 through 6 says. In love, that's unconditional agape love, God predestined us for adoption to be his sons, to be his daughters, which that tells us right there that God wants a family of grace. The heart of God is to have a family of grace where he has sons and he has daughters who are the very objects of his grace. His sons and daughters are the objects of his unconditional love, that we're the objects of his unearned blessings, that you and I have to see ourselves as sons and daughters of the Father, whom he loves unconditionally, who he's blessed with unmerited blessings. So in love, he, God the Father, has predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. So it gives the Father pleasure to pour his love on us. It gives the Father pleasure to pour his grace upon us. It's it's his will, it's his desire to pour his grace and love upon us. So in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. So grace is free. Grace is unconditional. Grace is unmerited. Grace is unlimited. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's glorious. And God just freely and fully gives us his grace in our sins, in our flaws, and in our failures. Because there's no reason for grace if we're perfect. I mean, the fact that grace exists means imperfections have to exist. The fact that grace exists means sins have to exist, flaws have to exist, failures have to exist, because if there's no sins and there's no flaws and there's no failures, then there's really no need for grace. And so in order to pour grace upon our children, we've got to understand, you know, they're going to have, they're going to have sins in their lives. They're going to have flaws in their lives, and they're going to have failures in their lives. If I'm parenting from a place where I'm demanding perfection from my children, and when I don't get it, I get angry. If I'm demanding they catch every fly ball, field every ground ball, and make every single throw, 
not understanding that I've had some, my children are imperfect. They're going to make errors on the field and they're going to make errors in life. And the fact that they're going to make errors on the, on the field and errors in life means God is enabling me to, to show them his glorious grace. So where do people begin to learn about the glorious grace of God in their own failures, in their own flaws and in their own sins? We find out in Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You know, how did the prodigal son learn about the grace of the father? When he was in the pig pen and when he came home, grace was poured upon him. And grace is what empowered him. Grace is what brought transformation to the prodigal son. The power of God's grace is seen in the transformation of the prodigal son. And he puts the son in charge of everything. Law can prop somebody up and make them look mature. Remember the elder brother? He looked mature, but he was very immature. But it was the prodigal, after his sins and his flaws and his failures and grace was poured upon him, that really grew him up. So what grew up the prodigal son? Grace. What's going to grow up our children? Grace. And when are our children going to experience grace? In their sins, in their flaws and in their failures. That's the opportunity for me as a dad to extend grace to my children. So one of the things I used to think about when my children were playing ball was, I don't really want them to make errors and strike out, but I understood that when they did, that was the perfect opportunity for me to share the grace of God with them, just in how I talked to them and how I treated them. I remember one coach, you guys are probably familiar with uh, Josh McDowell, If you're old enough, I guess. He's been around a while. He was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. And he wrote a really good book years ago called How to Be a Hero to to Your Kids. Very grace-based book, which I read when I was probably late 20s, early 30s. And I remember Josh McDowell going to his son, Sean's coach. Sean played uh, baseball. And he went to the son's coach and he, he gave the son a $20 bill. Or he gave the coach a $20 bill. And he said, hey, coach, when this team loses their first game, I want you to take them and get get them all ice cream. And what he was trying to do was to communicate this idea of grace, that don't wait until they do something good to celebrate with them. Celebrate with them even in their failures, because you're communicating love to them. You're communicating grace to them. You're communicating acceptance to them. And that, that never left my mind when I read that in that book. God has freely given us grace in Christ in our sins and our flaws and our failures, and we want to give that to our children. Notice what Paul says about the father in Ephesians three fourteen through 21. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And again, the father. I pray that out of his the Father's glorious riches, the Father may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ that you may know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, 
according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul is praying to the Father here. And Paul is praying that the Father would enable his sons and daughters in the church to grasp the love of Jesus, to grasp it in a way that goes beyond their head and into their hearts, that they would know how much they're loved by Jesus. And that's what we want to do as fathers. We want to communicate to our children in such a way that they know how much they're loved by Jesus. And I can think of no better way as a father to communicate the love of Jesus to a child than in their failures. Because when did the love of Jesus come to us in our failures? You know, what's the cross all about? It's about God demonstrating his love for us in Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in our failures, in our struggles, in our weaknesses, in our sins, that's when grace abounds. So how can we help our children understand the love of Jesus at the cross? Well, we can love them the way he's loved us in our sins. We want to love them that way in their sins. And we're passing on the love of Jesus to people. And then notice what happens to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. According to his power, what's that power? That power in context is the love of Jesus for each one of us in our sins. That the power of a parent is when we pass on the love of Jesus to one of our children and to all of our children when they're in their sins and their flaws and their failures. That's their power to ultimately escape their sins. That's their power ultimately to leave behind their sins. How is the prodigal able to escape his failures? How is the prodigal able to escape his, his own flaws and his own sin? How was he able to escape his shame and his guilt? It was the love of the father. So here is Paul. He's praying that the father would, would grant the believers in this church in Ephesus. And, and remember, the church in Ephesus is made up of moms and dads. So he's asking that the mothers and the fathers in this church in Ephesus could really begin to understand the love of Jesus deep within their, their hearts for themselves so that then they can pour out this love upon their children. And that's the power that is at work within us. It changes us from the inside out. And then he goes on to say, to him be glory in the church. Notice the church, the power of a church is in the cross of Jesus. When a church stops speaking about the cross and stops speaking about the love of Jesus at the cross, the church begins to lose its power. Because the power of a church is in the gospel of grace, and the gospel of grace, the center of the gospel of grace is the cross of Jesus. And so it's important and it's vital for church leaders to make the, the heart of that church the cross of Jesus and the love of Jesus for people, because that's the power of the church, and that's the power of parents, and that's the power of children is understanding the cross and the resurrection and Christ in us and the love of Christ in us. So to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Grace is the unlimited forgiveness of God freely and fully provided for us in Jesus. 
Look at Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. This is the gospel of grace that Paul was assigned by Jesus to go tell the Gentiles about. And Paul's telling these Gentiles in Ephesus about the gospel of grace. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. What is that? The full payment for our sins, in our failures, in our flaws, in our sins as fathers. Jesus loved us so much that he went to the cross and he died for us at the cross. He shed his blood for us at the cross. The cross is a picture of the love of God for humanity. The cross is a picture of the love of God for mothers. The cross is a picture of the love of God for fathers in our sin, in our shame, in our guilt, in our failures, and in our flaws. We have a heavenly father who says, I love you, and I've forgiven you, and I accept you, and I care deeply for you. So in Christ, we have redemption or the full payment for our sins through his blood. That's the cross of Jesus. And the redemption through his blood is the forgiveness of our trespasses. We are completely forgiven. According to the riches of his grace, that's the gospel of grace, that God lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. A wise and understanding parent lavishes grace upon their children in their guilt. So in a child's guilt and in a child's shame and in a child's failures and in a child's flaws, a wise parent will lavish upon that child grace, unconditional love, unmerited kindness, unlimited forgiveness. Grace is also God's unmerited kindness freely given to us in Jesus for our salvation. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says this, but because of God's great love for us, notice this, his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, notice rich in mercy, an abundance of mercy, an abundance of love to us, his sons and daughters. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses. So his great love came to us and his rich mercy came to us when we were dead in our sins. That's when his great love came. That's when his mercy came. Think about it. When did the great love of the father come to the prodigal son? When he was dead in his sins, dead in his trespasses, the mercy of the father, the great love of the father came. So it is because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our, our trespasses, our sins. It is by grace. Grace is the great love of God for us. Grace is the, richest, the richness of the mercy of God to us in our sins. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him. These are the blessings of Ephesians 1.3. We've been forgiven. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. In order that in the coming ages, God might display the surpassing riches of his grace demonstrated by his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So we're really getting to the heart of grace here. Grace is the unmerited kindness of God to us in our sins. Grace is the unmerited kindness of God to us in our failures and in our flaws. It's his unmerited kindness. For it is by grace, the unmerited kindness of God, the great love of God, the richness of his mercy, 
It is by grace you have been saved through faith, through trusting in this grace that's been poured upon us in Jesus and trusting in the person of Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. All right, let's continue to look at what is grace. Grace is the uninterrupted access to the Father, where we relate to the Father in an atmosphere of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, and complete forgiveness, full forgiveness. Ephesians 2.18, for through Jesus and what he's done for us, through his grace, what he's done for us on the cross, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And look at this access that we have to the Father. Look at the, the atmosphere that we come into when we have this access to the Father. Ephesians 3.12, in Christ, through what Jesus has done for us, his grace, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Freedom and confidence. And what this means is we can never be out of fellowship with God as our Father. Even though that's a mainstream traditional teaching in much of Christianity, it totally ignores the gospel of grace. It puts us back under a law-based system. From my understanding of Scripture, it is absolutely impossible for our fellowship with God to be interrupted by our sins because our sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. And we discover in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, God's not counting our sins against us. We've been reconciled to God. We're now free to go to God. We're not out of fellowship with him. We go to him in freedom and we go to him in confidence. The teaching of you can be out of fellowship with God, it robs us of our freedom in Christ and it robs us of our confidence in our relationship with the Father. We approach God. We are in this relationship with God, the Father. Freedom and confidence. Confidence. I'm confident I'm forgiven. I'm confident I'm accepted. I'm confident that I'm loved. I'm confident in his grace toward me and his forgiveness of all my sins. I'm confident that in his acceptance of me through Christ. Look at Ephesians 1.3. It says, grace and peace to you from God the Father. This is the heart of the Father to each one of us as fathers, as grandfathers, as people who are in relationship with God through, through faith in Christ. Grace and peace to you, not from Paul. Paul's writing the letter, but Paul's not saying grace and peace to you from me. Paul's saying grace and peace to you from God the Father. That's quite a statement there. And that's what God the Father would say to you tonight and would say to me tonight. Hey, Brad, grace to you. My peace to you. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're valued. Notice that peace comes after grace. Only when you and I experience the grace of God will we ever experience peace in our relationship with God. If I really haven't experienced God's grace, then I'm going to think, well, God's a little angry with me. He's a little upset with me. I didn't have my quiet time tonight or today. I, I didn't pray today. I didn't read my Bible today. You know, I failed to practice the spiritual disciplines today. And I know God's a little annoyed with me, a little irritated with me. I'm kind of exasperating God now. God's a little upset with me, a little outdone with me. 
Look what Paul says. Grace and peace to you from God the Father. I will never experience true peace in my relationship with God the Father unless I experience his grace. And that's what Paul writes about in Ephesians. He wants desperately for the people in Ephesus to experience the gospel of grace. And he wants this gospel of grace to go deeply into their hearts, into our hearts. And as the gospel of grace goes deeply into our hearts, it begins to grow us. It begins to mature us. It begins to change us. It begins to heal us. As this gospel of grace goes into us, it begins to bring peace into our lives, removes the shame, removes the guilt, removes the, boy, God's upset with me today. And God's a little frustrated with me today. And he wants me to to get my act together a little better. Now, he wants us to grow. Certainly, he, he wants us to leave behind very unhealthy sin patterns in our lives, for sure. But those happen out of grace. You know, how can we help our children leave behind the sinful patterns in their lives? Well, if we can build a grace relationship with them, then we can begin to help them leave behind those, those sinful patterns because it, it hap- people respond to relationships, not to rules. Our children we will respond to a relationship of grace that we have with them a lot quicker than they'll respond to our rules. Rules will control a child for a short time, but a relationship will change them for a lifetime. And so a relationship with our children that's built upon grace is something that will change them and empower them and be with them for the rest of their lives. Whereas our rule will be with them until they're maybe 18, 19 years old, and then they're gone. But the relationship is with them even after we're gone. That grace relationship stays with them. So the Father wants a grace relationship with us, which is an open, honest, transparent relationship with him as Father, where we know that we're loved, that's confidence, that's freedom, where we know that we're accepted and we know that we're forgiven. And there's no fear of judgment. There's no fear of condemnation. And there's no fear of of rejection in this grace-based relationship with the Father. That's why grace and peace to you from God the Father. We can be honest in this relationship about the worst thing about us, about the worst thought, the worst action, and the Father is going to put his arms around us like he did the prodigal, and he's going to be full of kindness and goodness. We're already forgiven in Christ, and he's just going to pour his love upon us, which then heals us and changes us. So... As we're educated about God's grace freely, fully, and forever given to us in Jesus, then we're able to express his grace to others, starting in our own families. Let's read some more verses out of Ephesians where Paul has been educating the believers about grace. And he writes in Ephesians 4, 26 through 32. He says, do not let the sun set upon your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Notice this phrase, but only what is helpful for building up the one in need and bringing grace to those who listen. So when we speak to our children, we want to speak graciously to them. We want to speak words of grace to them. We want to build them up in their time of need. When is one of the greatest times of need for a child is in their failures, in their flaws, in their sins, in their mistakes. They they don't need a condemning lecture from me, their father, they really need compassionate grace at that point in time. 
And that's what builds that relationship. Now we can discuss, you know, why things happen later on and help them make some better decisions. But first we want to pour that compassionate grace out on them. Paul goes on to write, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In the context to grieve the Holy Spirit is failure to show grace to those whom we're in relationship with. Because if we fail to show grace to people whom we're in relationship with, our relationships are going to fail. And that grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants our relationships to be successful. And grace is the key to successful and healthy relationships. So if I fail to give grace to those whom I'm in relationship with and their flaws, if I fail, fail to give grace to them and their flaws, then it's going to harm the relationship. And, and that really grieves the Holy Spirit because he loves us so much. It's not that it makes the Holy Spirit mad. That's not the word grief at all. Grief is a word of love. He hurts for us. He loves us. He wants us to have good relationship with our children and our wives and, and other, other people. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, outcry, and slander, along with every form of malice that's revenge. Be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other. In the Greek language there, it's not the word forgiveness. We've looked at this in other studies. But be kind and tenderhearted hearted to one another, forgiving each other, which in the Greek, it's freely given the same grace to others, just as God in Christ has freely given you grace. That's the Greek words there. So how do we create an environment of grace in our homes? We create an environment of grace in our homes by giving grace to one another, the same grace God has given us in their failure. So rather than getting bitter and mad and angry and yelling and slander and putting down, and you said this to me and I'm going to say this to you, we're going to do the very opposite. We're going to be tenderhearted. That's grace, forgiving, full of mercy, full of love to one another. We're going to give grace to one another just as God in Christ has given grace to us. It's really important to quickly give grace to those we're in relationship with so that Satan doesn't get a foothold on our relationships. We've got to really quickly, quickly give grace. Remember when the prodigal came home? The prodigal comes home, the father runs to him and puts his arms around him and loves him. Do you remember what the father said? He said, quick, quick, go get the best robe. Quick, go get the sandals. Quick, have the fattened calf killed quick. Why quick? Because grace has to come quickly because Satan is already, he's waiting. He is looking for somebody to devour. He is looking to devour a father's relationship with a son, a father's relationship with a daughter, a husband's relationship with a wife. He wants to devour and he wants to divide. But Satan cannot get a foothold on our relationships when you and I give grace. It's impossible. Grace is the glue that holds our relationships together. And grace is the grease that keeps Satan from getting a foothold on our relationships. And so that's why Paul spends a lot of the book and a lot of time in Ephesians teaching people about God's grace flowing to them first. Because before the grace of God can flow through me to those whom I'm in relationship with, it's first got to flow to me and in me. And I've got to realize I'm the recipient of this great grace of God, of this glorious grace of God in my sins and my failures and my flaws. 
And now this grace can flow through us to those whom we're in relationship with, and Satan can't get a grip on our relationships. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children, and walk in love. Let this be how you walk in your family, in your home, in your relationships. As beloved children, imitators of God, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering to God. So we've been studying the instructions of the Lord that Jesus gave Paul about grace. In contrast to the instructions that were law-based that God gave Moses. So what we don't want to do is when we read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. We don't want to leave Ephesians. We don't want to leave that book as a pastor and as a Bible teacher and turn back to Deuteronomy. That's the last place we want to go. The church is not under the law. We want to go to Ephesians chapter 1. We want to go to Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's where the instruction of the Lord is. And if we can grasp those truths about grace, then we can give those truths to our children and we can begin to grow them up in grace. What does bring them up? And we'll, we'll bring this to an end. What does bring up your children in the training and the instruction of the Lord mean? What does this phrase bring them up? Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord is the process of growing children in grace by giving them grace in their flaws, in their failures, in their weaknesses, in their struggles. Bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord is the process of growing children in grace by extending to our children the same grace God the Father has extended to us. Bringing them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord is the process of educating our children about God's grace given to us in Jesus just as we have been educated about God's grace freely given to us in Jesus. Bring them up in the training. We've looked at the instruction part of this. Bring them up in the training. Bring them up as a process. Training is a process. Training is consistently giving grace to my children so they can grow in grace. Training is consistently extending grace to my children so they can experience grace. Just some quick thoughts about creating an environment of grace in our homes. When we consistently extend grace to our children, we create an environment of grace. The environment children are raised in will affect them positively or negatively. It will follow them the rest of their lives. Whatever environment they grow up in will affect them the rest of their lives. God wants to create environments of grace in his family or in the family. God wants to create environments of grace in the family so that children can grow up in grace. Three ways a father can grow his children in grace. Number one is create an environment of grace for my children. An environment of grace is an environment where children feel loved, valued, accepted, and forgiven. An environment of grace is an environment of peace, which flows from love, value, acceptance, and forgiveness. An environment of grace is created when we give our children unearned blessings, unconditional love, unlimited forgiveness, unmerited kindness, which is mercy, tenderheartedness, compassion, and we give our children uninterrupted fellowship. I had a guy I was talking to a little over a year ago. He was uh, very established in his church. He was a leader within his church. He was very committed and very devoted 
as a believer. People would look at this guy and say he's a very mature believer. As I got to know this person and started building a relationship with him, it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that he really didn't understand the gospel of grace. And as I began sharing the gospel of grace with him, much of what we're talked about tonight, it really began to change his heart. Something began to happen inside of him, and he began to change. And one of the things he and I talked about quite often was the difficult relationships he was having with his children. And as I began sharing the gospel of grace with him, he began to get it. The Holy Spirit really began to open his eyes so that he could understand the gospel. And one of the first immediate impacts it had on my friend was his relationship with his teenage children. And so one day he walked into my office and he walked into my office. He said, Brad, I have something I want to tell you about my relationship with my teenagers. He said, I used to think that whenever they sinned, whenever they messed up, whenever they made a bad grade, whenever they did something wrong, I used to think that until they came and apologized to me and asked for my forgiveness, that I was just going to be out of fellowship with them. And until they came to me, would that fellowship be restored with my children? But what I've learned from you is that my fellowship with God as my father is never broken. That my fellowship with God as my father is never interrupted by my sin because my sin was nailed to the cross. That's an impossibility. And that I'm always in fellowship with the father because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that's been given me by the father. He's lavished this grace upon me. He said, it totally changed how I parent my children. Whenever my children make mistakes now, sins, failures, flaws, whatever's going on in their lives, I don't wait for them to come to me to reestablish fellowship because now I understand fellowship with them has not been broken. That I extend forgiveness to them before they even ask me for forgiveness. He said, so Brad, here's what I did. I, I, um, I sat my children down in the living room and we had had a very difficult relationship for years with my teenagers. And I apologized to them. And I told them I was sorry. I told them that I hadn't taught them about grace. I told them that I hadn't been a graceful parent. I'd taken them to church, make sure they were at Sunday school, making sure they were at the youth group, making sure they were part of the activities of church. But he said, I missed the whole gospel of grace. And now that the gospel of grace, he said, Brad, now that you've shared the gospel of grace with me, it's really changed my life. Now, here's a guy who's been in church for 30, 40 years. His dad was the worship pastor of the church that he attended. He said, but I read my Bible every day. I prayed every day. I had my quiet time. I had my devotions, practiced all the spiritual disciplines. Never understood the gospel of grace until you took the time to explain it to me here in your office. And it's totally changed my life. And it's changed how I parent my children. And it's made the biggest difference in my relationship with my children. My relationship with my children is better now because of the gospel of grace than it's ever been in my entire life. And that's the power of the gospel. It can change the hearts of people. It can change families. Real quick, an environment of grace is creating a relationship with our children where, they're, where they freely come to us in confidence. They feel safe sharing with us anything without fear or condemnation, judgment or anger but they're assured of our unconditional love and acceptance, unmerited kindness, and unlimited forgiveness. We create 
an environment of grace in our homes, when we speak words of grace to our children, we want our children to hear us speaking graciously to them. And that flows right out of Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up the one in need, bringing grace to those who listen. Proverbs 12.25, anxiety weighs the heart down, but a kind word, a gracious word, cheers it up. You know, so many children are under so much pressure, so much anxiety. Teenagers are under a lot of pressure and a lot of anxiety. They don't need us as parents to add to their anxiety. They don't need us as parents to add to the pressure they feel. So we want to speak graciously and kindly to children. And then finally, number three, in creating an environment of grace in our home so that children can grow up in grace. As we want to model grace before our children, we want our children to see us showing grace to others and to hear us speaking graciously to them. All right, real quick, before we wrap this up, sometimes when I share this with people, they'll say, well, Brad, what about discipline? And I don't think we can truly, really discipline our children effectively if grace isn't being poured out upon them consistently. Because if we're disciplining our children and we haven't created an environment of grace, they're more than likely going to ultimately rebel to our discipline. That's what was happening in my friend's home. He had a very law-based home. A lot of rules, a lot of consequences, a lot of you need to get it together, you need to get in shape. That's not good enough. He had exasperated his children. They were giving up and they were going away. If, if not anything emotionally, one day they would probably leave physically. But when we create environments of grace, then we want to create limits for our children. We want to create boundaries for our children. It's okay to have consequences for going beyond the boundaries. It's, it's great to have rewards for staying in the boundaries. Children need healthy boundaries. They need healthy limits. But we enforce those boundaries and we enforce those limits in an atmosphere of grace, in an environment of grace, in a relationships with grace, because ultimately what's going to change the hearts of our children aren't the limits that we set, but the grace that we give. But they need limits. They need boundaries. Absolutely. But just remember, it's the grace that we give them when they violate the boundaries that ultimately is going to change their life. Doesn't mean there's not consequences for the boundaries. Doesn't mean there's not consequences for going beyond the limits. That's, that's a necessity as well. So we want to have these in balance, but what makes the limits work is the love. Building love relationships with children is what makes the limits work in their lives.